Father in heaven, thank you today for waking us up for a wonderful day here in Northern California, beautiful weather, and thank you for protecting your word that we can study today. Bless us, we come in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 will be our focus this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. How many want to stir up some love today? And good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So, beautiful text. How many of you would agree that assembling together in worship is something positive? Especially if you see the day approaching, right? Now, this text has been all over the news, um, all over the news. Hebrews 10, 25, there it is. Worshiping together again, there it is again. Make going back to church part of normal faith, Hebrews 10, 25. Is the church not essential, Hebrews 10, 25. Free in Christ to defy uh, state closures, Latino churches offer a 10, Hebrews 10.25 as justification. North Rock Baptist keeps its doors open because of Hebrews 10.25. And the Reverend here writes also that Hebrews 10.25 um, calls for people coming together at this time. Multiple churches defy state orders and parishioner tests positive. Now let me ask you a question. Is this the purpose of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25? Okay? Is or does Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 actually, is it to be a political action text that we use to defy government and public health officials? Is this really the purpose of the text? Um, I, I mean, I think it's a great text. I fully believe in assembling together. I could probably, more than your average guy, go through the benefits of assembling together. In fact, I teach a course called Religion and Health, where I believe I spend several lectures going through all the scientific data about longevity, about mental health benefits, about physical health benefits, about emotional health benefits, and about spiritual benefits. I think I could probably talk about it a long time. And those of you who've been in my classes know that's true. However, is this the purpose of these, this particular text? I do not think so. So when we're looking at a text like this, what do we need to do? Uh, We have to ask questions about any text, not just this text. And the one question we need to ask is, will the entirety of the reading of Scripture sustain the position we're taking? Does the entire Bible, if we believe it to be a source of authority, say this? 
I do not think so. I will give you some examples from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. I could give many more, but let me just give you a few. First of all, in Genesis chapter 3, well, let's just go back further. Let me add an additional text. Let me add Revelation chapter 12. Here you have war in heaven. And they were all assembling together, but assembling together was not the only thing that needed to be considered. In fact, there was a group of individuals who were causing a somewhat of a spiritual coronavirus in heaven. <laughs> they wanted to wear the crown instead of God wearing the crown. And this guy named Satan said, look, I'm going to get everybody on my team. Finally, Michael said, we need some social distancing. We need a little quarantining. And he kicked them all out. He kicked them all out. He was not saying, now don't forsake the assembling together as is the manner of some fellow angels that are apostate. No. He said, you're out. Genesis chapter 3, same thing happens. Satan comes down to earth. He tempts the first parents. They get crosswire with what God had asked them to do. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that for the sake of protecting the purity of Garden of Eden and not perpetuating life for those who were in rebellion, he drove them out of Eden. It says he drove them out. The word there is garish, which means to divorce. It was actually a legal separation. And that legal separation would only be reversed if they got rid of the plague that was in their heart. Exodus 32, verse 7. You can look these up. I let you just maybe take a screenshot if you're at home. Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. Um, actually, 33, verse 7 it should be, I believe. In Exodus 32, you had what was called the Golden Cafe Church. They came together and they said, let's worship the calf instead of the lamb. Let's worship this God of Egypt rather than worship God. Moses went up. He was on the top of the mountain. They didn't know where he was. And they said, well, let's just go ahead. We'll just put some pressure. We got to get back to worship. Let's get Aaron on our side. And uh, just assembling together is really important. So they assembled around a golden calf, and they worshipped the golden calf, and they worshipped each other, and they did many different things. And what happened as a result? What happened? There had to be a differentiation between the Levites. Well, this is how the Levites came into four, actually. There had to be a differentiation between those who were faithful and unfaithful, and actually God himself moved the tabernacle out into the wilderness the tabernacle of what was it called? Congregation. In other words, coming together, forsake not the assembly as is the man of some, except in this case. And he moved the sanctuary out into the wilderness. And says, you really can't come unless you have a complete conversion. Now, how many things is kind of interesting? Leviticus chapter 13 through 15. 
We're looking at this text, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and saying, is this a text that matches with the rest of Scripture? Should the top priority be assembling together? Is together? Well, I think it's very important, but there are always stipulations. And in Leviticus chapter 13 through 15, God is in charge. There's a cloud over the children of Israel leading them by day, and there's a fire by night. And he gives some rules um, in Leviticus 13 through 15. What are these rules? If someone gets leprosy, if someone gets a disease, a plague, do they maintain their standing in the camp? No. Where do they have to go? They have to go outside the camp. How many days? They have to go outside for seven days. If that mitigation does not work, they have to go out for seven more days. In fact, they have to keep staying outside the camp until what happens? Until the leprosy is gone, as decreed by the pastor, who was the priest, as well as the physician. No separation between the physician and the pastor at that time. Just as in Jesus' day, there wasn't. And in Jesus' day, did they still have this? Yes. A leper had to cry out, unclean. He might have to say, COVID positive. Stand back. COVID positive. <laughs> I was downtown the other day and someone was actually doing that. It created quite a distance between them and other people. COVID positive. So Leviticus 13 through 15 would not go along with this idea that was in the newspapers all yesterday. What about Jeremiah and Daniel? Oh, I love this text. You probably like it. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. Um, verse 11 is the one we like. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Almost sounds like a church service. You'll call upon me. You'll come and pray to me. Only problem is, you have to read the rest of the chapter. <laughs> this is a problem many times with people who use, or we might say, misuse the Bible for their own little political agendas. Look at verse 10. For thus saith the Lord. Who said it? The Lord. After 70 years are completed in Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. You know what that place was? The temple. The sanctuary. <laughs> 70 years of quarantine. 70 years. 70 years. You think you had it hard. With 70 days. 70 years. So, does this text forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, and so much who see the day approaching, can we apply it to this standard of throughout the Bible? Not working. Not working for us. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was taken captive. They didn't set up a synagogue in Babylon for Daniel and his captives. Daniel chapter 9. He actually knows about that prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 29. But notice this in Ezekiel. I love this text. I remember when I first found it about 30 years ago. I thought it was very exciting. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far out among the Gentiles and scattered them among the countries, yet 
I shall be a little, what does it say next to them? Sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. How many think that's just a beautiful text? You did not have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to have sanctuary with God no matter where you were. And you know what? Over the last number of weeks, there have been sanctuaries, little sanctuaries, little home gatherings where people, God has been present there. In fact, the ministry of this church has expanded exponentially online due to the technological Levites. And where are those things being watched? In little sanctuaries all over. And I would contend that on that basis alone, there has not been a forsaking together of assembly. There has been an assembling together. Sure, it's been a different situation, but it still has occurred. And has God showed up? Has God done anything for you in that little sanctuary at home? Think of my friend Curtis and his wife Janine. And I watch how they're having their little Sabbath school in their church at home. And people discovering all kinds of leadership roles that they were leaving to the Levites before. And then they themselves now are stepping up. And God has not forsaken his people during this time. Of course, you want to come back together. Of course, there's something to larger congregations. Of course. But we can't say that Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 has not been fulfilled during this last 70 days. It's just impossible to say it. Perhaps this text also, as I was preparing to pray a prayer for our Zoom graduation several weeks ago, for the college here, this really struck me as Solomon was praying and dedicating in this prayer of dedication. And in this prayer of dedication... First Kings chapter 8, notice what it says. Um, he's talking about the temple being dedicated. This place, you know, um, and then verse 29, if they are in some other place, they pray toward this place. But then notice verse 37. When there is a famine in the land, pestilence. How many of you have ever heard of a pestilence recently? Or blight, or mildew, locust. And by the way, the, the locusts are coming. The cicadia, they're supposed to be sweeping across the country soon. Or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities. Whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, and then notice this, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone and by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward the temple. Uh, this is what struck me about that. Look, the biggest problem we've had recently is not the plague of coronavirus. The biggest problem we have is a plague in our own hearts. And God can help deal with that even if we just pray towards heaven where he is. So number one, does the entire Bible sustain the position that this has to be a political action text? I think I demonstrated to you, absolutely not. So please, read the Bible, not the newspaper. Secondly, will 
a reading of Adventist history sustained justification for dismissing public health and government directives in regard to such an issue on the basis of this text. My friends, sadly, the answer is, actually for me joyfully, no. Or someone says, what about prohibition? What about temperance movements? Oh, you know, the early Adventists went out on temperance movements and they, and they, they fought against excesses of drinking and, and, and prohibition and, and they were activists and we need to be activists like them. Okay. This is well-meaning, I believe. I like activity. How many like activity? I mean, action is a law of life. We, we need to be active. But think about this argument for a minute. Prohibition and temperance. What were those movements meant to do? Increase the public health. Okay? So, if you want to follow that logic, then you should be saying, we got to be very careful about the health of society if we want to be active in some sense, right? Does that really match up? During the Spanish flu, did Seventh-day Adventists pick it against the government and say, open our churches? You're not going to find it in Adventist history. You're not finding it anywhere. Nowhere. What about the cholera epidemic in the 1840s? You're not going to find any political action against the government. And even today, epidemics like cholera and other places Zambia bans church services as cholera epidemic hits the nation. This is 2018 Catholic News Service. And you might be surprised. The Catholics and the Adventists agreed. How many can say, uh-oh? Well, why did they agree? Because it was a what? Public health issue. The Archdiocese of Lusaka has canceled all church-sponsored programs until further notice. The Seventh-day Adventist Church also has canceled all church meetings, advising members to worship from home. Was this a conspiracy? Was this a fulfillment of Revelation 13? Um, is all the world wandering after the beast? No, they're just trying to avoid cholera. It's a little bit different. So look, I do not believe, as a student of Adventist history, that you can use that text, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, in this way because of prohibition and the temperance movement. Do I believe that there are times for political action? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are also times for public health action. This is from the pen of Ellen White, an early Adventist pioneer and prophetess of the early Adventist church. When Lord Palmerston was premier of England... He was at one time petitioned by the Scottish clergy to appoint a day of fasting and prayer to avert cholera. He replied, cleanse and disinfect your streets, houses, and promote cleanliness and health among the poor, and see that they are plentifully supplied with good food and raiment, and employ right sanitation measures generally, and you'll have no occasion to fast and pray. <laughs> I, this does not mean that... <laughs> Ellen White was against fasting and praying. You can read her writings and it's not true. But in this particular case, you can fast and pray all you want, but it doesn't replace mitigation or public health efforts. And then finally, she concludes uh, this quote of, of Lord Palmerston, 
nor will the Lord hear your prayers while these, his preventives, remain unheeded. I mean, that's kind of interesting. So, um, don't say we have to go back to church for fasting and prayer over and against public health issues. If you're an Adventist, don't do that. You would not be in keeping with the own history of your own church. We want to be Adventists, don't we? Okay. Okay. Another reading assignment I might give some of you who are still struggling. Maybe you have just invested yourself in the evangelical hoopla over Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. I would recommend that you read Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, Chapter 49. Read the whole thing. Read it all. I'm only going to excerpt it this morning. By some of our brethren, many things have been spoken or written that are interpreted as expressing antagonism to government and law. It is a mistake thus to lay ourselves open to misunderstanding. It is not wise to find fault continually with what, what is done by the rulers of government. That's not our work to attack individuals or institutions. We should exercise great care lest we be understood as putting ourselves in opposition to civil, and I might say also public health authorities. It is true that our warfare is aggressive, but our weapons are to be found, those found in a plain, thus saith the Lord. Our work is to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God. We should not be turned aside to lines that will encourage controversy or arouse antagonism in those not of our faith. How many think that's pretty good counsel? Pretty good counsel. So, um, now, there is a difference. If there was a situation that develops where you're being persecuted for obedience to God's law, clear thus saith the Lord, that's totally different. And in the same article, in the same chapter in Testimonies, Volume 6, that point is made. When the authorities command us not to do this work, that is of proclaiming the Ten Commandments, when they forbid us to proclaim the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, then it will be necessary for us to say, as did the apostles, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So if there's persecution for the law of God, has there been persecution for the law of God over the last 70 days um, with the public health directives across America? Absolutely not. You might say it's uplifting one of them, thou shalt not kill. You might say, hey, fact, as a matter of fact, you know, they're actually helping people not die. Um, now, you might say also, well, they didn't have the right evidence and this and that. But don't harsh, judge them too harshly. They listened to several scientists, and maybe they overdid it. Um, I don't know about you, but if they overdid it, if my family and someone was saved instead of not as a result, I'm okay with that. Um, I'm okay with it. Number three, could the context of Hebrews itself bring clarity concerning the actual meaning and application of this text? Now, this is a novel idea. Actually, look at the book itself and try and figure out what the text means. Not only in the context of all Scripture, but Hebrews itself. How many are excited? Let's look at Hebrews itself to try and remember and figure out the meaning of what Hebrews is saying. How many think this sounds like a good idea? So let's look at it. Now let me ask you a question. When was the book of Hebrews written? Thank you so much for those responses. Of course, what would I expect? There's nobody here but me, basically, in the cameras. So when was the book of Hebrews written? 
It was about 60 um, A.D., 65. What was going on at that particular time with the Hebrews? The Hebrews and the Hebrews, for that matter. What was happening with all of it? They were, where were they living? Many of them living in Jerusalem. And this book was written to them. And what is about to happen to them? What was going on? Well, there was a group of zealots who had not followed the Messiah, but had stayed there, and they were agitating against the Roman authorities. And you can read all about this in Luke 21. You can read all about this in many different places. And what was Hebrews saying about the place and focus and worship at this time? Well, what was happening? First of all, Titus was about to come down and tidy things up for Rome. He was about to say, hey, look, that's enough. That is enough already. In fact, there's an entire arch called Titus Arch that <laughs> details this. If you go on the tour to the Reformation sites with me sometime, which Lord willing will be next year, we'll take you right through this arch in Rome. We start in Rome. And it shows right here, you can see the trumpets, the silver trumpets. You can see the placards, right? Those things, they have a, like a little triangle. Those are the placards. They're standards of the different places of Israel. And then you can see the menorah from the temple. And the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And all of the elements of the temple that they could take with them to Rome, they took to Rome. And they had a huge triumphal entry at the decimation of the temple. And in fact, they started trying to agitate again to kick the Romans out. And finally, the Romans got so upset, they razzed the temple ground. And they said, you can't even call it Jerusalem anymore. And for centuries, it was called something different. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was the book of Hebrews written then? Why was the book of Hebrews written? It was... Because they could not assemble together as is the manner of some because the day of judgment had come for them. And before that happened, what was God saying? He was saying, hey, look, get together now because pretty soon you can't get together. That's the context of this text. That's the context of it. And in fact, it had a much better answer than I've been hearing and the newspapers I read, about 30 of them yesterday, and no one had this answer because they had never read, evidently, the book of Hebrews itself. They just thought, good line, I'll put it in, and I'll whip up my parishioners or whoever I'm trying to encourage with this text. But look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we've been saying. What kind of point? All right. It's not a tertiary, secondary. It's a main point. It's a primary point. This is the main point of the things we've been saying. We have a high priest. Can you say hallelujah? Who is seated in Jerusalem. No. Maybe the new Jerusalem. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there 
are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. And so he has a more excellent ministry because he's in what building? The heavenly sanctuary. So Hebrews' answer to this forsaking yourself, don't forsake gathering together as this manner of son and so much more as you see the day approaching was, that day's going to approach, your temple's going to be trashed, and guess what? There's still something left behind. The heavenly sanctuary. And wherever you are, you can look to the heavenly sanctuary. Just like in 1 Kings it said, look to where the sanctuary is if you're in another country. It now says in the New Testament, look to the heavenly sanctuary point people to the God of the heavenly sanctuary, preach the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary, be a sanctuary-focused people. That's the point of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. That's the point. But not only that, Hebrews has other chapters. (laughs) What about Hebrews chapter 12? Look there with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Wonderful text. For you have not come, verse 18, to the mountain that may be touched, that burn with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest. And to the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words to those who heard it, begged that the word not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much a beast touched the mountain, it would be stoned or shot with an arrow. There was some serious quarantine in that situation. Didn't come to that mountain anymore. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the what? Heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered where? In heaven to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men, made perfect, to the mediator of a new covenant. What's it saying in Hebrews? There's coming a time when your church is not going to be open. It's going to be cast down. You can't go there anymore. The synagogue is gone. It's razzed by the Romans. You can't ever get there again. You're not going. You're not going. You're not going. But there's good news. (laughs) There's a sanctuary in heaven. And God is still there. And there's an innumerable company of angels. And they're still there. And you're registered in that book. You're registered up there. And by the way, not only is the temple left behind. In other words, there's still a temple in heaven. There's also a day that's left before. That's the whole point of Hebrews 3 and 4. What are we going to do? We can't worship. Wait a minute. Remember two things. There remains, therefore... A sabbatismos for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath keeping. There remains a sanctuary. And there remains a Savior. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, there also remains a second coming. How many think that's pretty good? Those are very good doctrines. Salvation. The Sabbath. The sanctuary. The second coming. Wow. One other thing I might note, since we're studying this little topic this morning, are there differences between denominations and religions concerning the importance of buildings? Are there differences, theological differences? Well, let me just show you a couple pictures. 
There are some people that will fight to the death over who's on the Temple Mount. Right? How many of you ever heard of this? They think the meek shall inherit Jerusalem. <laughs> and they're willing to fight with meekness for that. Uh, it's only one problem. And by the way, their theology, they've actually talked a bunch of Christians into that theology as well. There's all kinds of people that say, if we're not a friend of Israel, we're not a friend of God. How many of you have heard this? This is huge. Drives much of the literatures are written by the same people that are profi- profiling Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 on those news articles. But let me ask you this. How many of you have ever heard this rendition? The meek shall inherit the earth. How many of you ever heard that one? In other words, you're not, you're not going to fight over some little postage stamp area because you somehow have missed the point that Christ came and that he's in the heavenly sanctuary. Don't fight over that. Don't say, we must, we must gather together. How many of you are with me on this? Is there a difference in theology that we must keep in mind before we get swept away? Here's another one. Look at this. How many of you have noticed these places before? How many of you have actually gone on a pilgrimage to these places? Maybe not. But if you were a Muslim, you certainly would go on a Hajj to Mecca. In fact, you'd be encouraged to go there at least once, whether you lived in Indonesia or if you lived in Saudi Arabia or wherever you lived. You have to go at least once if you can afford it, and it's related to your salvation, actually. What about, what about the Basilica in Rome? Is there any, any benefit to going there? As a matter of fact, according to the theology of that particular church, there's great benefit in that. In fact, the entire city was rebuilt for pilgrimages. In fact, everything about Rome is built to come directly to the key to the entire theological system, and it actually is made like a key the entrance to Rome because St. Peter is there and he's the keeper of the keys. And if you go there, you can get, even now, I mean, if you want to sign up even now, September 8 to October 12, 2020, you can get a plenary indulgence at various basilicas and also at Rome. And what does that mean? That means you can not only advance yourself, but others that may have died from the terrible pit of hell and out of purgatory and into everlasting life because you actually went and physically sat in that building and you went through that door. When I was, when I was uh, most recently on my pilgrimage to Rome with my Protestant tour group, I showed them this door and this door only opens every so often. When you do go through that door, you're guaranteed so many more years taken off the things that are happening to your relatives. Islam requires that all Muslims who are financially and physically able make the Hajj at least once. So let me ask you a question, dear friend. Is your theology really the same as the people that perhaps you're identifying with? Maybe you need to look at that more closely. Now, let me close with this. Let me close with it. By the way, has this been an interesting study? Forsake uh, you know, stir up love and good works. Forsake not the assembly together as is the man of some, and so much more you see the day approaching. 
So in Hebrews chapter 10, if you study it closely, it starts with this whole idea that sacrifices in that Old Testament sanctuary no longer are needed, verse 1 through 5. What is needed? Christ, verse 6 through 12. And where where does our focus need to be? Christ in that heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12. Because he's on the move, so don't forsake the assembly together as your matter as is the manner of some. Was there a temple that was going to be in place at that time? No. Has to be something else. And what should be the focus at that time? Look at verse 25, uh, 24. It says, But stir up love and good works. Forsaking not the assembly together, as is the manner of some, and so much more as you see the day approaching, right? So our focus should be doing what? Stirring up love and good works as we focus people on what sanctuary? The sanctuary in heaven. Let me show you some interesting quotes. By the way, Daniel 8, 14, what does it say? Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, for those of you maybe not familiar with that prophecy. It is a prophecy that actually is the longest Bible prophecy, and it starts way back in about 500, 600 years before Christ. And if you add that up, it comes down to about the 1843, 1844 time period. And um, the whole idea of that prophecy is this. Cleansing. As, you know, under 2,300 days, then so the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, how many of you like clean things? How many think in this time people are talking about clean things? Hand sanitizer, washing. It's just like a Daniel 8 14 text. So, cleansing things. How many like that? And the whole point of this text is God is in heaven, and in a special way, in the 1840s, began a movement of cleansing, and he wants to cleanse everybody so that all the social isolation things can be taken out of the way and God can be direct with his people in that heavenly sanctuary. How many are looking forward to that? Go through all the walls of mitigation, all the different things, because he says, you know what? I would that I be with you. I want you to be where I am. And so so if that's what God is doing, and and he is doing that, and I could definitely show you that from the prophecies, he's going to have the people on earth that are doing the same thing he's doing in heaven. He's cleansing heaven. They're going to be cleansing earth. So, you know, maybe this could help us with our focus today. How many think that would be good? Help us with our focus today. Because it says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here on this campus, we help clean out people's coronary arteries. Can you say amen? We're cleaning out the coronary arteries. We help them clean up their diet so they don't have hypertension. We help them clean up their diet so they're not obese. We help them do all those different things. And guess what all those things are doing? Getting rid of the comorbidities so they can fight off infections like any virus that comes. Can you say hallelujah? How many would be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem? This is a Hebrews concept. Can you see it? It's the heaven sanctuary applied here and now. And how many want to help people clean up their thoughts? 
depression recovery program, anxiety recovery program, mental health. You know, when you look at what Christ is doing and who he is in the heavenly sanctuary, it helps with a lot of distorted thoughts. How many of you have ever had distorted thoughts besides me? And those need to be cleaned up. How many think this is good? Now, this quote, just totally, I just love this quote. I'm going to close with it. Actually, I have one more after it, but this is the next to last quote. Here it is. Look at this. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive on every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. So did Jesus have a good situation in terms of the government? How many think he could have really gone big time into picketing against the government? Yet the Savior <coughs> attempted, what does it say? No civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. Wait a minute! Didn't he get the memo on social justice? Doesn't he understand that he needs to be an activist? He was an activist, but at a much more powerful level than getting swept away into political rallies or placards. Notice what it says. He who was our example. He who was what? Our example kept aloof from earthly governments. Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy, the what? The remedy did not lie in merely human or on external measures. So he goes, wait a minute. I want to really be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. I don't want to get involved in political action. That's not my focus. My kingdom is not of this world, else I would fight. How many think if Jesus fought, he would have won? But that was not his whole idea. To be efficient. How many of you want to be efficient? The cure must reach men individually. Individually. And must regenerate the heart. How many think this is the key? Let me ask you a question. Over the last several weeks, when people have been scared with coronavirus, have you had any witnessing opportunities open up that you never had before? Have people in your house and in your family asked you questions they never asked before? Have you been able to individually reach people? Have you seen hearts being regenerated? That's where your focus should be. You have a chance to go down and pick it versus have a personal Bible study. What should you do? Well, let's put it this way. Maybe you go down to where the picketers are and try and pick up a Bible study there because it's obvious that they're trying to get answers in the wrong place. But they're trying to do something. They're trying to do something. Right. Don't question their motives. They're trying to say, hey, maybe the external force, maybe we can get someone to just say, you got to do this and you got to do that. And you got to have external pressure and laws and fines and felonies. And... That doesn't change people's hearts. But you might find some honest-hearted people there. 
How many of you want to adapt this principle? Stirring up love and good works. Last quote. Last quote. I, I promise, guys. Last one. Here it is. Revelation 14, 12 says, here is a picture of God's people right at the end. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus leads them to obedience to the faith, that is the commandments, in the context of patient endurance. Patience. That word patience is hupopomone in Greek, which means under extreme pressure. So under extreme pressure... What are these folks going to be doing? They're going to be sharing the first, second, and third angel's message. That's their focus. They're sharing the third angel's message. And notice what is coupled with this. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 through 4. There is something about plagues. There's something about pestilences here. That's a part of their work. Notice what it says. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his what? With his glory. So that third angel's message is joined by this fourth angel, and there's a glorious explosion of glory that is character. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, verse 2, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit. A cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxuries. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you what? Lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her what? Plagues. There will be plagues at the end of time. And we're supposed to be saving people from those plagues. And how do we do that? By giving God glory and pointing to the heavenly sanctuary and pointing to his salvation and pointing to his second coming and pointing to his Sabbath day. That's what Hebrews is saying. And that's what Revelation also teaches. And this last quote, look at it. If you adopt this way of looking at things, what happens? The way to be most happy is to seek to be a blessing to others. Stir up love and good works. When men and women give themselves wholly to this work, the earth will be what? Filled with the glory of God. How many want that to happen? How many wants it to happen? Now, how many of you can see, how many of you have seen something new about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25? And I hope that as we go forward, we'll be the most happy people in the most horrendous time. We'll be the most focused when people are most frantic. We'll be the most clear when people are the most confused. Not for our own glory, but to give God glory. To stir up love 
and good works. Forsaking not the assembling together as is the manner of some, but so much more. As we see that not only the day of judgment has come, it is passing, and his second coming is just on the horizon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much today for the blessing of Bible study and prayer. Help us to keep our focus on the main thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.